Hello, this is today's show. I'm your new host, Talent Zero. My guest today is Andrew Kuder. Andrew is the owner and the founder of Kuder Local. You'll know more about it when we come back. Stay tuned. Absolutely. Andrew and company Helen, we're good. That's yeah, perfectly fine. Awesome. Yeah. Andrew, tell me, who's Andrew Ruder? Where, what's your background? Where did you come from? Tell us about your background, your families, your growing up, everything, please. Yeah, so my, my parents originally immigrated to Canada from uh, Barbados. Um, okay. And uh, they came along with my grandmother as well. Okay. So we, we initially uh, set up shop in uh, Willowdale in North York. What kind of shop? Uh, no, we, 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 we uh, resided oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, initially in, in Willowdale, North York. And then eventually my parents moved to York Region, which is literally across the street from over Steels. And uh, we, we, we grew up there in Thornhill. And uh, my parents came to Canada with that strong immigration mindset, right? Hard work. Yes. Um, they really emphasized you know, me getting a good education. So they really instilled a very uh, solid work ethic in me from early on. They always told me as an individual of color, a visible mm-hmm. minority, especially growing up in Canada, you have to work three times harder yes. right, to get the same results, to get the same opportunities. So I carried that with me throughout my um, school, my academic career. And then I applied that to a lot of the sports activities I was engaged in early on. Um, what kind of sports? I so I was really into ju- jiu-jitsu and judo. Okay. I was a three-time Ontario uh, judo champion. I was a national jiu-jitsu champion. Um, I was actually at one point on the verge of uh, getting into mixed martial arts. I used to train with uh, Carlos Newton, who was the first UFC champion before George St. Pierre. And I was very serious about doing that. Um, but then, you know, my, my parents kind of stepped in, you of know, course. and they, 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 uh, they kind of emphasized, well, you don't know, you might get injured, you know, something might happen. So again, they, they stressed the importance of me getting a good education. Um, I majored in philosophy at uh, York mm. University. Okay. Um, I did that for five years. And of course, when you have a degree in philosophy, when you graduate, uh, there's not an obvious choice of the direction that you're gonna go in. <laughs> you have to be very creative in how you apply it. And I took the LSAT, and I, my, my score was good enough to get into law school. Did your parent influence you to become a lawyer? Because like most parents, especially immigrants, they want mm-hmm. their kids to be a doctor, a lawyer. So within time, your parents was like, Andrew, you have to be a lawyer or a doctor. Did that happen to you? <laughs> well, that, that is true. They didn't pressure me to become a lawyer, but, okay. but of course, you know, where they're from, in terms of what they deem to be, you know, successful career, they always point to the obvious choices, doctor, lawyer, you know, engineer, things like that, more obvious choice. But they didn't put any pressure for me to be a lawyer specifically. Um, I, I always tell the story, people ask me what, what got me interested in law at the outset. And when I was younger, my grandmother used to, used to watch a show called Matlock. I'm not sure if any of your viewers are familiar with. Um, I watched that one. You did. It's a I young, did. Young, 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 like a criminal law lawyer. Yes. Uh, you know. That's my favorite um, show. Small town. Up, yes. 
It's actually one of my favorite shows when I was younger as well. And, and um, I was so impressed with how he was a small time guy from a small town, country boy type, type persona. And he went above and beyond yes. to get the results for yes. his clients. And he usually had very limited resources and he really thought outside the box, very creative. And I love his rhetoric inside the, the, the courtroom. Yes. The way he just persuaded the jury, and, and, and they were just hanging on his every word, and, and he would go to the scene of the crime and do his own investigation, and get the extra, you know, edge he needed to be successful at trial. So I was always impressed with him how he fought for the little guy, yes. and, and for me, that's really important for me. Um, representing the little guy, um, I like the underdog, the underdog rather. Um, I'm a big fan of, of David going up against you know Goliath. Goliath. So um, that that was kind of you know that initial foray into the legal world of seeing what it was all about and the power that a small town lawyer could have and the impact it could have in his community and the people within. Awesome. Okay, let's talk about your company. How did you start it? When did you start it? And what were the ups and downs of creating a company? I'm sure it's not going to be that easy. So tell us what's ups and downs and everything. Yeah, so I started my law firm during the global pandemic about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And, you know, it's that, it's that realization where it's never the perfect time to do anything in life. You understand? Okay, yes. uh, once you have that gut feeling, that intuitive feel to pursue something that you're passionate about, your dreams, your, your, your goals, you got to do it. Right? Even if the stars aren't perfectly aligned in the sky, right? So for me, it has got to a point where I had a firm understanding. I was doing law long enough. I um, started out in Toronto, worked at bigger law firms. I, I was doing it long enough that I got a good sense of the kind of firm I wanted to build. I wanted one that was more inclusive, more culturally diverse. I wanted to take on pro bono um, projects and pursue social justice issues. Um, I, I had my own, my own idea, the culture I wanted to develop in my law firm. And I, I had that feeling I just wanted to go ahead and do it. Happened to coincide with the time we were in a global pandemic. And I said, you know, forget it. Let me just go ahead and do it. Some of the challenges, um, you know, when you're working for a bigger law firm, you're, you're just a lawyer wearing one hat. That's your primary focus. The moment you start on, you know, pursuing a business on your own, you wear multiple hats. I gotta worry about financing, I gotta worry about advertising and marketing, I gotta worry about how do I get clients. Um, you know, a lot of these things they don't teach you how to do in law school and you have to figure out how to do that on your own. So a lot of it was a big learning curve for me and juggling multiple balls at the same time to kind of figure out how I'm gonna get my law firm started, how I'm gonna get it off the ground, how am I going to continue to get an inflow of, of, of clients coming in? So there were a lot of challenges, but for me, so much more fulfilling. So much more fulfilling when you're pursuing your own dream, doing things on your terms, you know, the freedom to build a company that you want, that corresponds with your own values, attitudes, and beliefs. Um, it's so much more rewarding. Uh, what kind of pro like service do you provide? What kind of lawyer are you? What field? So I, I do civil litigation and tort law broadly. But specifically... Yeah, for people who don't understand that, like me, it's <laughs> <laughs> So civil litigation um, and tort law. Tort law is just a fancy word for, for civil law. People who committed like a wrong against you who are negligent in their behavior. Um, within tort law, I really focus on personal injury law. That makes up a chunk of my practice. And uh, the niche area I focus on within uh, personal injury law is what's called catastrophic impairment law. 
So I basically represent um, clients who are victims of motor vehicle accidents and who sustain catastrophic impairments. So that's like uh, the more severe injuries and impairments, like um, severe traumatic brain injuries, fractures in your spines, uh, terraplegia, petroplegia, loss of vision, loss of the mobility of an arm, things like that that significantly reduce their ability to function in your day-to-day lives and particularly at work. I have more questions for you. Let's take a break and come back. All about inclusion and really giving everyone a fair say. Welcome to the Today Show. This is our flagship show. I am Unstoppable Tracy. I am Zach Damon. It is a pleasure to be here. I am excited. What is up? We have a great show today. Jay Stoyan here for the Disability Channel, the world's only inclusive channel for and by persons with disabilities. Get ready to be inspired, everyone. We have people watching from all over the world, but also all over Ontario. We also take a concerted attention in the veterans community. In moments of stress and trauma, we can get a hold of ourselves. To help make a difference for people with disabilities, to show people how to love themselves or their disability. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me, giving this platform for myself and other people with disabilities. Thank you so much, folks, for joining us for this episode of the Disability Channel of Detroit. Please tune in next time. Threshold test that you have to pass, or if you proceed with a tort lawsuit, 
And usually around the two-year mark is when you get a sense of the severity of someone's injuries. That's when someone's injuries technically plateau, right? So before we kickstart the tort lawsuit, usually around the two-year mark, sometimes earlier, sometimes with the one-year mark, um, I ensure my clients get access to accident benefits, income replacement benefits, medical rehabilitation benefits, non-earner benefits, um, things like that, right? Because that, that, that's what they need to kind of get them by. They can't work. They get some income replacement benefits and need treatment for the rehabilitation, get that going until I get the tort lawsuit started. I was reading about you and I found something very interesting. There's a lady that you changed her policy from 65000 to $1 million. Not only that, not only that, you changed the Ontario law. Yeah. I was like, wow, how does that happen? So th this was a particular client. She was an indigenous girl, teenager. She was a mother of a disabled infant at the time, and she was involved in a serious motor vehicle accident where she sustained a catastrophic traumatic brain injury. So of course her parents were devastated. She also suffered multiple fractures in her spine, elbow, and hip as well. Um, her parents were devastated because initially um, there's uh, the policy limits that she was dealing with at the time was sixty-five thousand. Um, it could be lower if you have a minor injury, but she clearly did not. So it was, it was set at $65,000. Um, when you start to look ahead in terms of the cost of the rehabilitation treatment, her mother and, and, and everyone around her knew that $65,000 might seem like a lot, but that's not going to be enough for her to complete her full rehabilitation to get to reach her maximum medical recovery. Um, so, and, so what was needed was for her to get what we call a catastrophic impairment designation. Or if you meet certain criteria in the statutory accident benefit schedule, which is a regulation under the Insurance Act, um, that would increase your policy limits from $65,000 to $1 million. So um, based on her traumatic brain injury, I reviewed the criteria. I'm very familiar with it. And right off the bat, I, I, I knew that she met the criteria. Um, I got a second opinion from a neuropsychologist, PhD. She agreed with me. The insurance company retained a neurologist. The neurologist agreed with us as well, so I thought case closed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's a fast. Surprise, uh, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the insurance company uh, found a bureaucratic glitch in the criteria to get that cap designation, and okay. they exploited it to the fullest. Um, it, it, was, it was basically revolving around the fact that one of the criteria was that you had to be admitted as an inpatient uh, to a hospital that's mentioned in a uh, guideline. And the hospital that my client was admitted to as an inpatient, even though it was a level one trauma center, was not on that particular guideline. And, and when you look closely at the guideline, the hospitals that were mentioned were hospitals, level one trauma centers that were located to major metropolitan cities. But if you're involved in an accident, you live out in the country, in a rural, more remote area, and you get admitted to a level three trauma center, most likely will get transferred to a level two trauma center to a hospital not on that list, which is exactly what happened to my client. So um, based on that, the insurance company denied the catastrophic impairment designation. So my client is devastated. Her mother, her family were devastated. They didn't know what they were going to do. So I took a deep dive. I dug deep. Um, I, I studied the catastrophic impairment definition evolution from the 1990s all the way to the present. I interviewed some of the doctors who um, were hired or retained by the Minister of Finance to provide recommendations when they wanted to amend the law, get their perspective on the kind of the medical basis and foundation for the criteria. 
And then I started to get, um, uh, so once I started to do that, I eventually persuaded the new insurance company to overturn the decision. And that was great for my client, the family. I increased their policy limits from 65000 to a million dollars. And I was happy for them. But at that point, I started to realize, you know what, uh, my duty extends beyond just the mere retainer. Um, it extends beyond a mere retainer to the larger community. I started to think, well, what's going to stop the insurance company from taking advantage of that bureaucratic glitch in legislation to deny another child in the future who sustained right. a traumatic brain injury who lives in a more remote area? Right. And how many yes. times have they done that in the past? So at that point, I decided I was going to change the law. So I started to, uh, to get a lot of media attention. I started to, um, I was featured in, in, in newspaper articles. I started to write a lot about it. Um, I got uh, uh, legal um, organizations that outlaw involved. Um, and eventually, I got to sit down at the table with the Financial Securities Regulation of Ontario, Authority of, of Ontario, which regulates the Insurance Act. And I persuaded them to amend the guidelines. And it, it reminded me that, that one decision, you know, um, uh, from the insurance company affects one child and one family. But if you can change the law, then that impacts thousands of children and thousands of families throughout the entire province of Ontario. So um, I did that and I still have more work to do in that regard. Um, but um, I, I was happy with the initial results. And that's, that's what inspired me actually to write my book. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. But before the book, I, like, uh, I've been reading and then there was a testimonial about you. You do sometimes pro bono. Yes. What inspires you to do that? So, so with the work I did to change the law, that's an example of pro bono work. Right. Uh, when I when I went out and I was bringing attention to this issue with this particular um, bureaucratic glitch I mentioned that had discriminatory ramifications based on geography that affected marginalized groups, visible minorities living in more remote areas, I was getting paid for that. Um, but uh, when I when I when I feel like there's a, there's an imbalance of power between a bigger institution and individuals, especially marginalized groups, um, that really pulls my heartstrings, and you get to a point where you know, most people aren't going to take up that job because they're not going to get paid for it. Um, but you still realize the need that it has to be done. And uh, just doing the right thing, something that my, my parents and my grandmother instilled into me at a very early age, um, is of the utmost importance to me. And you have that, that mentality, if I don't do it, who else will do it? And, and if I don't do it, how many other people are going to continue to you know, feel the consequences of this, this ridiculous law, right? So um, I, I'm motivated by the people I serve, right? Um, for me, once I hear their stories, that's important. So, you know, every client that I get, you know, the first thing I always make sure I do is I visit their house. Uh, which is something oh, I always okay. do. I visit their house. Um, I, I get to know them and I get to know their, their immediate family and their loved ones. I want to hear their story. Uh, their story compels me. Um, I want to know what their life was like before the accident. I want to know how this particular accident and the injuries and impairments they sustained devastated them and adversely impacted their ability to function afterwards. And the impact that not only has on them, but also their family and their, their, their loved ones. That really gets me more motivated when I learn more about them to fight for them and, and, and then to take on social, you know, social justice issues like, like this one. I don't know what to say, really. I am like speechless. <laughs> Let's talk about your book. Sure. And you are a couple of awards winner. Yes. Right? Tell us about the award that you won in the book. What inspired you to write? 
So, so what does Barbara write the book was the same story I was telling you about with, with my indigenous clients. Um, you know, I, I wanted to raise more awareness of it, uh, and I wanted to get the word out. Um, so that was the initial motivation. But then um, I started to think to myself, uh, uh, is this just an issue that affects my province that I live in? Or is this an issue that affects other insurance regimes in other provinces throughout Canada? Basically, is this a provincial issue or is it a national issue? So part of the book was bringing attention to the issue that exists in my province. But then I started to explore the other insurance regimes in all the other provinces and territories of Canada to see if there was also this issue of discrimination based on geography. Once I did that comparative analysis, then I started to think, well, how can we address this issue on a national level? So, so the final section of the book makes recommendations on how to address this issue, right? Um, in terms of awards, um, yeah, last year I, um, I was blessed and fortunate and grateful um, to, 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 to be nominated for Best New Offer. So um, that was an award handed out by Clio, um, which is a company that provides uh, legal software primarily to lawyers in the States, but also Canada. And I, and I heard yesterday they're venturing out into Australia and oh. also Europe. So um, that was in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was I was a little nervous when I when I got, because there, there's never been a Canadian law firm to win that award. Okay. So I didn't think I was going to win. So when I found out- So you were the first one? First Canadian lawyer, yeah. They, they've been doing it for, I think, nine, 10 years. So so that, that was, uh, that, 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 that was a huge event for me because just starting out um, to, to see someone recognize the work that you're doing. Um, so that, that, was, that was great and a, and a big honor. Um, and, then, and then in November last year, I was nominated um, by the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers for the Advocacy Award. Again, for the work that I did changing the law and, and the work that I, that I did for my Indigenous client and other, other Indigenous clients that I represent in the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve. That's amazing. Okay, what's the title of your book and where can people find that? And then I'm sure after hearing this, a lot of people are interested to call you. Where, where can they find you? How they can contact you? As clear as they Sure, sure. So, so the name of my book is Catastrophic Impairment Law in Canada. And my book publisher is LexisNexis Canada. And so um, if you want to get the book, you can visit LexisNexis.ca. Um, and there should be a, uh, a buy book online tag on that page where you can uh, find my book. You can just type in the name, Catastrophic Impairment Law in Canada. My name, Andrew Rutter, um, and then you'll, you'll, you'll find it. So I, I've signed away all my rights to them, so they're the only ones who can sell my <laughs> book. I, I can't. <laughs> and then if you want any more information on me, the best way to do that is to visit my website, uh, which is Rudder Law Group. .ca. That's rudderlawgroup.ca. Um, I also have a YouTube channel because uh, I have a, I have a vlog that I put out where I give personal injury-related tips to people, try to give value to people, answer questions, commonly asked questions, um, to, to just to provide more information to, to people. Even if they don't hire me, they can learn something about it and make more informed decisions. Right? Well, you heard that people, you know, where to find you, YouTube, website, and everything. Andrew, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. This was our show for today. Thanks for watching. Next time.